Lamentations, chapter 3. Lamentations is a prophetic book of mourning. Obviously, the term lamentations here carries that idea. This book is a book of sorrow over sin. It is a book that expresses grief over the judgment of God on the people of Judah, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple under the Babylonian Empire. But it also expresses hope in the character and the promises of God. And this text in front of us is actually the personal testimony. It's the personal experience of a man who undergoes great sorrow. And in this text, like so many others in the Bible, particularly I'm thinking of some of the Psalms that are structured like this, there is a turning point in the text. You've noticed that in some of the Psalms before? In the beginning of the Psalm is one mood or flavor, and then there's a turning point to something else. And that takes place in this Psalm, just in this in lament, in just the course of a few verses the speaker turns from his feelings of hopelessness to the hope that God grants him. But I want to start this story in medias res, as they say in literature, in the middle of things, and go right down to verse 18, because this really is the low point in his experience. Brother John saying about how the promise of God is for peace on earth. And we look around and we see great turmoil and, and uh, death and destruction and sin and rebellion. Um, and it sometimes is the experience of God's people that they look around and this is all that they see. And, and this is where this man was and it brought him to this point in verse number 18, Lamentations 3, verse 18. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Here's a man who by his own testimony has lost his endurance. Some versions have his splendor or his strength. It's a word for Perpetuity. It could be translated eternity or forever. It implies long continuance, perseverance, endurance. Endurance is just the will and the desire to keep on going. And this man's testimony was that that endurance was gone. He had lost the will to go on. And of course, some people lose that endurance emotionally. They come to a point where they are just absolutely tired. You ever heard anybody bear testimony to you that way? I am just emotionally tired. I have no strength left. I am ready to just give up. I am at a place where I'm just absolutely ready to crash. My endurance has perished. Some people come to be so despairing that they contemplate even ending their mortal life. I was tempted to say they contemplate ending it all, but the truth is that our spiritual existence continues, whether we want it to or not. 
but they become so low that they, their endurance to even go on in this mortal life is at an end. Some people, and this is the worst of all, come to an end of their endurance spiritually. They feel that they are at the end of their spiritual rope and they are ready to lose perseverance and to give up on their faith and to give in to their anger or despair, to give in to unbelief. My endurance has perished. Here's a man, we're just jumping right in the middle of this, who is at the bottom, the absolute bottom. Here's a man whose endurance has perished. And notice also that his loss of endurance is accompanied by a loss of hope, right? So has my hope from the Lord. Because hope is what fuels endurance. We all feel like we could endure if we could just possibly see some way forward. We could persevere if there's some way in all the world that we could look beyond our present crisis, or we could continue going if we could just see something that transcends our immediate predicament. We could endure if we had hope of something beyond. But when all hope is lost, then our endurance is on its deathbed. So that's where this man was, by his own testimony seeing all that he's seeing and experiencing all that he's experiencing in that time and place, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Now, what is it that led him to such a hopeless state? Well, the answer is that it came in the context of prolonged and encompassing affliction under the providence of God. That's how he came to be in this state. I want us to begin with verse 1 now. Work our way up to this, or down, I should say, to this low point. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand Again and again, the whole day long, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. 
He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Here is a man whose trajectory, whose downward spiral we can follow. He bears testimony of great afflictions. And he bears testimony, first of all, that these afflictions are the work of God, right? Is that not clear in these 16 verses? 16 verses, 16 times he identifies God as the author of his affliction. No, sorry, 20 times in these 16 verses. He specifically says, it is God that has done this. Every single verse proclaims the Lord as the author of these calamities. And this is, of course, proper theology in the sense that God is the ultimate cause of all that happens. Given the interconnectedness of all causes and effects, he's either sovereign over all things or he's sovereign over nothing. The challenge is, of course, that there's a lot of calamity in the world. There's a lot of pain and suffering. And the challenge for us is understanding and accepting this as from the hand of God. Verse 1 acknowledges, he acknowledges that he and his people are under the rod of God's wrath. The rod. The rod is an instrument of discipline, isn't it? It can be discipline, that is, can be positive. Discipline can be positive in terms of instruction. God instructs us in the way that we should go. But God's discipline can also be painful and corrective. We call that his chastening hand, his chastening rod. The rod, likewise, can be an instrument of judgment on the wicked, on the unbelieving. Psalm 2, right? You will break them in pieces with a rod of iron. But his rod can also be an instrument of loving correction for his own children. Just like the proverb, the father in Proverbs who, uh, who, who disciplines his son because he loves him. Proverbs 13, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. And sometimes the affliction of God's providence that comes into our lives, sometimes the afflictions of providence are a direct consequence of a specific sin that we have been holding on to. And God is more than able to reach into your life with his chastening rod and afflict your soul and body until you come to repentance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that some who were taking the Lord's Supper flippantly were made sick by the Lord, and some had died. 
Affliction, though, can also be a kind of general teaching tool of God. There's a sort of a parallel in the natural world, and that is pain. We have pain in our bodies as we interact with the world as a way to teach us how to safely interact with the world around us. And so the Lord uses his rod in a more general way to teach us. And then sometimes affliction that we endure in our lives is just part of living in a sin-cursed world. Just as there were many righteous people in the land of Judah at the time when God brought his judgment and all of them suffered, though many of them were believers in the Lord God. And yet, of course, suffering comes not for their specific sin, maybe not for yours, but as, uh, as part of living in a broken world. And it makes us long for the completion of God's redemption when he will t- return and make all wrongs right. We see also that many of the descriptions in verses 1 to 20 um, relate to what God has done as he has brought chastening on his people, but also they reveal the author's emotional response, his reaction to all of the things that God has brought about. And we can just sort of trace his path to, down to hopelessness along the lines of what he says in these first few verses. In verse 2, he felt despondent, as if God had driven him and brought him into darkness. God had driven him out of the light, out into the darkness, and in fact, the kind of darkness where there wasn't any light. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we sometimes think that if we could even see a little pinprick of light down there, if we can see our way clear to working this thing out, then we could just keep on going. But he feels like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. You ever felt like that? It felt like there was, there was just no uh, glimmer uh, at the end of your tunnel. In verse 3, he felt hounded. He felt hounded like God has turned his hand against him. And in fact, not only has God set his hand against him, but he's done so again and again. He says, it's the whole day long God is against me. This unrelenting chastening of God, he feels just hounded by God. There's just, you know, it's one thing to endure affliction. We can often summon up enough fleshly fortitude to endure for a little while. But God will not let that suffice here. And like he says in Isaiah 9 and 10, not once or twice or three times, but four times, for all of this that God has done, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. This is the way this man feels. His hand is still stretched out against me, morning, noon, and night, day after day after day. He feels this affliction will never end. You ever felt like that? In the midst of an affliction that just feels like it will never end? In verse 4, he felt broken. He had made... He says, the Lord has made my flesh and my skin waste away. 
He has broken my bones. Perhaps it was that he had a, a literally a, just a physical affliction from God. But either way, he felt like he was about to die under these afflictions. In verse 5, he felt trapped. He felt like God had besieged him and enveloped him like a, an army surrounding, completely surrounding a city and laying siege to it. There's nowhere to run. There's no path out. There's no escape. There's no loopholes here. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought that it is actually could be the goodness of God that cuts you off from all possible fleshly alternatives? Here's a man who felt besieged, trapped, in a dead end. And certainly many people have felt that. And again, he says in verse 7, along the same lines, he has walled me about, he has put a wall around me to where I cannot escape. It's like I'm trapped in a cell and I can't get out. And again in verse 9, he says, He's blocked my ways with blocks of stones and made my paths crooked. It's like the only possible path forward, he's put huge chunks of stone in the middle of that path and I can't get through. And my, that path he's caused to zig and zag all over the place so that I cannot make progress. He feels trapped. Then in verse 6, he bore testimony that he felt dead. He's made me dwell in the darkness of the dead like, uh, like the dead of long ago, he says. Like the dead of long ago in their darkness. I'm forgotten and lost and just dead. There are times when almost every one of us has felt a kind of deadness in our souls. Maybe it is in such a way that you can't even explain it or really understand the cause for it. Maybe sometimes that cause is all too apparent to you. In verse 8, he felt forsaken. Though I call out to God and cry to Him for help, He does not answer. He just shuts out my prayers. This is the way he felt. You ever felt like that, even for a short time? The writers of the Second London Baptist Confession says, say this, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season His own children to their manifold temptations and corruptions of their own heart in order to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their heart that they might be humbled or to raise them up to a more close and constant dependence upon Him for their support, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for other just and holy ends, so that whatever befalls any of, the, of His elect is by His appointment, for His glory and for their good. Oh, but when you are in the midst of that and you feel that God is not answering your prayers. Oh, it's tempting to feel forsaken. And then verses 10 and 11, he felt attacked. Like a, he felt like God was like a bear or a lion that was hiding there in the woods 
You know, maybe he's picturing himself trying to pick his way through this boulder-strewn path that's zigging and zagging all over the place. And, and there are woods alongside of this path. And out of the woods comes this lion that's been just waiting for him. And it's just like, even when I try to push my way through, it's just like God, God is actively fighting against me. He feels attacked. Feels like God is against him. And let me tell you, certainly God is against those who persist in their rebellion and their sin and their unbelief. But for the believer, his providence does sometimes also seem painful rather than pleasant. He feels like he is under attack from God. Like God is crossing all his fair designs and schemes. Similarly, in verses 12 and 13, he felt targeted by God. God has made him a target and launched his arrows right into his soul. He feels like God just has him in his sights. He's out to get me. I've talked with people who have borne testimony very similar to that. I just feel like God is out to get me. And then verse 14, he felt humiliated. He felt humiliated because in the providence of God, he felt like he had become a laughingstock. Humiliated and demeaned and embarrassed, mortified. Have you ever felt that? And you know that God is sovereign over all things. And in his providence, that's where he's put you. How can a person endure in the face of humiliation? And then in verses 15 and 16, he felt bitter. He's filled, he says, filled with bitterness. You can look at the words for filling in this passage. He's sated with wormwood. He's made to drink the bitter cup. The bitterness of his circumstances are like eating gravel. He's bitter. Everything that God does in his life, everything that's going on in that nation... He's just leaving this bitter taste in his mouth. And all of this then leads to verses 17 to 20, where he feels hopeless. Where he says in verse 17, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Can you imagine affliction going on so long that a person says, I don't even remember what it, what it was like to be happy now. That's where this man bears testimony. He says to the reader, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. And then he assures us, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. His misery is all he can think about. He's lost all hope. And now his endurance has perished and he's ready to give up. This is the path to hopelessness. And many Christians have found themselves, even Christians, at times, for a time, have found themselves on. This was Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, when he was shut up for a time, locked away in a cell in the Doubting Castle. 
guarded by giant despair. Brother or sister, you have not, you are not in that cell alone. Some of God's good people, many of God's finest, have been brought very low to the point of feeling nearly helpless. Spurgeon, this was Spurgeon on those days when he was sunk down deep in ill health and deep depression, sometimes for weeks on end, bore testimony of just sitting in his room and crying, um, hardly even understanding why. This is David Brainerd, who suffered such hardship in frontier ministry, uh, in the near American West that left him just for weeks on end, isolated, alone, for the sake of trying to spread the gospel, sometimes lying down on his face prostrate in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere. This is the case of Adoniram Judson, who was a pioneer missionary to the land of Burma, what is today called Myanmar who was imprisoned for nearly two years and treated horribly, uh, extremely malnourished. And during that time of his imprisonment, his little flock, and he had labored for years without seeing a single convert, and finally had gathered a little flock around him, a fledgling church. And during his imprisonment, that church was scattered to the winds. And he was finally released from prison only for his wife, and his, uh, I believe it was his third child, the only living, yet living child, both died within months of his release from prison. And at the end of all of that, he, he, he got to the point where he went out in the woods, built himself a little hut, he called the hermitage, and dug his own grave and sat down by the grave to just wait for the end. Right. So God's people have been there. They have felt this way. Here's a testimony here. Hopeless and feeling ready to, be give, to give up. And maybe to one degree or another, you've been in a similar place at some time. But there is a turning point, And this is where I hasten to bring us. And it is the place where hopelessness begins to turn into hope. And it's in verse 21 in this chapter. Look at verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Right? So there is hope, and it comes as a result of something, right? Therefore, I have hope. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. And then at the end of verse 29, there may yet be hope. Right? So everything in verses 1 to 20 leads up to this, that I have lost hope and my endurance has perished because of it. But then in the verse 21, there's a turning point, and three times he points to a restored and renewed hope by which God sustained him. Oh, this is what we need. 
that we may persevere. We need hope. Hope to go on, hope to trust, hope to wait on the Lord, hope to endure. What is the turning point? Well, according to verse 21, this hope comes because of something that the prophet calls to mind, right? You see that in verse 21? This I call to mind, and the result is, I have hope. It is a result of calling something to mind. And that's where I want to just settle down for a minute. This is something we're going to have to do with our minds, with our hearts. Not just to allow ourselves to be blown along with the winds of our emotions. To really just settle down and, and grab your minds by the lapel and point your mind in the right direction. He's going to set his mind on something. And this is, this is um, what I'm going to have to do with my mind. I'm going to have to call to mind, right? You see that in verse 21? This I called to mind. And the word translated call here is a word that usually means something like um, turning or um, turning back. Even, it's even translated in some cases as repentance, a change of mind, a turning around in our mind. It is a return to something, a coming back to something. Many times it's, I think, translated again. Uh, something coming back to something again, intentionally recalling something. The Septuagint uh, has words that, that mean deliberately assigning or, or arranging something. This is what you're going to do in your mind. You're going to settle your mind on something. You're going to point it in a particular direction. You're going to deliberately arrange it in a certain way. You're going to tell your mind how it needs to be thinking. This is what this, the, the, this author is doing. In the middle of all of this, at his lowest point, he says, this, this, I set in front of my mind. I turn my mind back around again to these truths. I set my mind again on what I know to be true. I remind you that this is exactly what every one of us needs to do. And of course, it sounds so easy, doesn't it? Just set your mind on the right things. And, and uh, yet, of course, it is a challenging thing to consciously redirect our mind towards truth. I've quoted it so many times, I know, but Lloyd-Jones' famous statement that we are our biggest problem is that we listen to ourselves rather than speaking to ourselves. And here is exactly what you have in this lamentation, isn't it? The, psalm, the, 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 the author here has been speaking to himself. He's been saying, oh, I'm losing hope. I have no hope even couches it in that kind of terminology that he's speaking to himself. But now he calls something new to mind. He sets his mind once again on truth. You know, our emotions um, may sometimes lead us astray. <laughs> well, that's no surprise to you probably. Spiritual and emotional, well, let me say it this way. Emotion and spiritual insight are two of the most powerful, mysterious aspects of the human experience. Your emotions 
and spiritual insight. And I think they're designed and meant by God to be in perfect harmony in the human self. But because of sin, our emotions are not always what they should be. And our emotions themselves must be chastened, must be taught and and instructed, rather than just experienced. Because sometimes we feel down when we really should feel up. And sometimes we feel up when we really should feel down. Sometimes we feel bored when we really should feel moved. Sometimes we feel excited when we really should feel wary. Sometimes we feel hopeless when we should see the hope that is God himself set before us. And so the turning point from hopelessness to hope is intentionally setting our minds on the truth. And you can see that here in verses 22, 23, 24. Look, he's talking to himself. He's talking to his own mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, he says to himself. The mercies of the Lord never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Remember that when you are feeling hopeless and helpless, you're going to have to recall these things to your minds. And so verses 21 through, I mean, about verse 41 are these truths that he intentionally calls to his mind. Verse 21, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What is it? The steadfast love of the Lord endures, excuse me, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. You could just take every line here. Every line is like a gold nugget. And you ought to take these little gold nuggets and put them in your pocket. Just take that line and put it in your brain. I mean, literally memorize that line. And and you just wait for the Holy Spirit to bring those lines and, and set them before you. When all of the afflictions of God's providence are tending toward your hopelessness. Oh, the Lord is good, verse 24, 5, to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Consider that he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth or to not deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. 
Nevertheless, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. This is what he turns his attention to, right? This, these verses are what he sets in front of his mind. And it brings him from a state of hopelessness to a state of hope which fuels his endurance. Oh, we have only a really a time to skim these precious nuggets. Let me just hold each one out in front of you for a moment. Turn it around, let you see just a little bit of it. And then it's going to be up to you to take these and put them in your heart and put them into your mind. This I call the mind, he says, and therefore I have hope. What? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love. What is that? His chesed, his covenant-keeping love, his eternal love by which he binds himself to his people. This is the I do of the divine wedding vow. I will never leave her nor forsake her. This is his steadfast love, and it never ceases. What God has joined himself to in the covenant of grace, he will not put asunder. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You can just take that one out and hold it up for a little while. His mercies, his, his compassion, his tenderness, his mercies never Come to an end. Consider this, that he, uh, that when you feel you have exhausted God's grace and thought, well, he is done with me, his mercies never come to an end. You can let your bucket down into the well of grace to draw again and never hit the bottom. You say, I can't believe I have failed again. I can't believe I'm under the chastening of God again. As he, is there mercy still reserved for me? And the answer is, his mercies never come to an end. His mercies are new every morning. How about that one? When you wake up and you go out and you begin your prayer in the morning, and all you can think of is your guilt. Have you ever had that? Have you ever gone to pray and all you can think of is confession? Like, that's all I can do today, God. I want to get to petition, but right now all I can do is, is confess. And then the sun pops over the horizon, and you remember his mercies are new every morning. They're as sure as the dawn. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy will come in the morning. Night doesn't last forever. Morning is coming, and mercy will dawn upon all of those who are truly God's children. The same God who causes his son to rise up every day on the good and upon the bad will cause the sun of his grace to shine upon his children. Just as surely as day follows night, so restoration will follow chastening and joy will follow affliction. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, consider the absolute faithfulness of God. Whatever he starts, he finishes, whatever he promises, he fulfills. 
He is not fickle with you like you're fickle with Him. With Him there is no shadow due to change. Great is your faithfulness. Set this in front of your mind. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. You know, your circumstances may be, may seem hopeless, but your hope is not in your circumstances. It is in your Lord. The Lord is my portion. How many times has that been the encouraging thing to you? You can't look at some change of circumstances. You know, that's often the way people try to encourage one another. They say, well, it could be worse. And maybe you can't think of a situation that could be worse. Or, you know, things are bound to get better. And you can't see any way that things are going to get better. Your hope is not tied to your circumstance. Your hope is tied to your Lord. He is my portion. I mean, if you have the Lord as your portion, you have hope. He is my inheritance. Whatever my lot in this life, my eternal reward is God himself. Consider and hold up before you the goodness of God. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And I, of course, have to hasten to remind you that everything that I'm saying about God and his goodness and his grace is not true for everyone. Some of you, he will set his face against you for all eternity. But for those who wait on him, for those who seek him, right? Isn't that what this verse says? The Lord is good to those who wait for him. The Lord is good to the soul who seeks him, to that person. He is good, and he will be good forevermore. Or consider how we may experience that goodness of God in verses 26, 27, 28, 29. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear that yoke, that chastening yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Have you ever worn the yoke of God's affliction? He says it is good to experience that early. Why? Because that's what makes you wait on the Lord. It is good that one should wait upon the Lord, to wait quietly for the salvation of God. You know what it is to wait quietly for God's salvation? Not to wait in agitation, in bitterness, in endless complaint. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Not like Job who darkens counsel with words without knowledge, but to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. When all is said that can be said, to sit before the face of God and to wait for Him to manifest His goodness to His children. Rather, he says in verse 29, let Him put His mouth in the dust. Let him be humbled before God, and there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. Why? 
Why? Because the Lord will not cast off forever. Yes, in the providence of God, his cheek is being struck. He's being insulted. This is God's providence for him. And he, he gives himself to it knowing that it will not go on forever. The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. This is how, of course, our Lord himself had hope to endure the cross, giving his cheek to the one who strikes, being filled with insults. How? For the joy that was set before him. Because he was assured that the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And sometimes in life, you're going to have to hold on to those bare promises of God. You're going to have to recall to your mind those truths. Your emotions are wrought, and you're going to have to set your compass, the compass of your heart, on the fixed north. Set your minds on this, verse 33. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. There is no joy to God to have to cause pain to his children any more than there is for a parent who has to discipline his child. It is a great act of love. It's the selfish parent who refuses to discipline his child and bring pain to his own soul. But the Lord, he says, doesn't delight in your pain. He only does it in order to bring about your good. He says in verse 34, to crush underfoot the prisoners of the earth or to deny a man justice or verse 36, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. All of the injustice in the world that touches you, in other words, the Lord does not what? The Lord does not approve. He has no evil in his heart for any of his children. You understand that? And yet, of course, verse 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Right? This is going back to the sovereignty of God again. It is from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come. Make no mistake, God decrees it all. He ordains it all, but he ordains it for the good of his children. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, nor scan his work in vain. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You know, we often get to the point where we say, I just, I won't be silent until God explains himself, until he comes clear and really makes, you know, I'm, I'm calling him to account. He needs to come here and, and I need to have my say. I, I, need to, I need to get an answer from him as to what he's doing or I will not be satisfied here. Oh, you foolish Job. Can you understand the ways of the Almighty? There are times that we are not meant to understand, but we're meant to trust without any understanding. Like a child who trusts his father and mother implicitly. Oh, I will not delve into things too high for me, but lay myself in trust upon the Lord like a babe on her mother's breast. Verse 39, why should any living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? 
Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Say what? This is not something, you know, the afflictions of the world are not something that I, I am above and I don't deserve. No, I deserve far worse than this, right? Maybe you say, well, I don't know of any sin in my life. I'm suffering innocently, like Job. Well, I'll just say to you that I will not be one of your useless friends and say to you, no, God must be punishing you for some secret sin in your life. Or perhaps I too will come under the judgment of God for such a claim. But at the end of the day, I want to ask you, is there any single one of us who is truly guiltless before God? Have we not all received better than what we deserve? The godliest of men, Job, at the end of all of God's dealings with him, and he was a paragon of perseverance. The Bible itself holds him up that way in the book of James. And yet this man at the end of his days said, I repent in dust and ashes. Why should a living man complain? And we're going to have to set our mind on this, that God will ultimately bring about justice. Because there is a lot of wickedness and injustice that touches the people of God and God's providence. We're going to have to rest in statements like this. In verse 59, O God, you have seen the wrong done to me. Verse 61, you have heard their taunts. Verse 64, I will, you will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of your hands. Verse 65, you will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. Verse 66, you will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. And we anchor our souls in this, that in the end, God will make all wrongs right. He will bring every work into judgment. And we live for a life beyond the here and now. And this is part of what distinguishes Christians, right? You, you, you could read the stories of Christians who experienced almost nothing in their entire lives but affliction. I don't know how many of us could say that. We've had a lot of blessings mingled with our afflictions. But you can hear the testimony of saints who have had almost nothing but afflictions, but died with hope. How in the world? Because in the whole course of this life, they have not found everything that is. Their hope is for something beyond. Their hope is in the promise of God. And in the end, he will make all wrongs right. I'm going to tell you there will be a time, there will be times when all feels hopeless. And I encourage you, child of God, to remember in those moments that you're need to, going to need to recall truth to your mind. You're going to need to set it in front of your thinking, what you know to be true, the character and the promises of God, and speak those to your own heart and say to your soul, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray.